Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Simon Taylor is one of the most visible people in financial technology today. As the founder of fintechbrainfood.com, one of the most popular fintech newsletters around, his thoughts and musings are must-reads for everyone in the space, from technologists to regulators to law professors. And if you, like me, are looking for a download and thoughtful perspective that cuts through the hype, Simon is the man. So this week, I've asked him to stop by the beat to talk about the future of fintech. It's certainly on everyone's minds with all the disruption, regulation, court cases, down rounds, and volatility. So do sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy a conversation with one of the masters of the field. Simon, thanks so much for joining the show, man. Chris, thank you for having me. Feels like a homecoming. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, you know, and there is something really neat, really kind of cool, you know, having you on the other side of the uh, FinTech podcast. Yeah, no, many time podcast host, not often a guest. It's nice to come to your house for dinner and especially when we're talking about FinTech. So um, I'm here for it. All right. You know, for all the great things, you know, you know, just just before jumping in. Um, and because you're you're so often the the person on this side of the microphone, I think a couple of people could be kind of interesting, a little bit curious into you know the 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 backstory, the origin story of of Simon Taylor uh, before we we hop into the details. I mean, like, how did you become you? I mean, so many people nowadays want to frankly have visibility and a voice, you know, that spans both policy and industry. Like, how did you actually become you? I have opinions and I don't know how to shut up, um, I think is that. But I'd also been very lucky to work for some of the largest financial institutions in the world, either on the inside uh, or, you know, kind of selling to them from the outside. So having spent 20 years in financial services, having done pretty much every job in the industry, you know how to suddenly sober up and and play the right role in the right room. Um, But like all of us, uh, sometimes I struggle to turn off the human side and having an outlook for that in terms of writing, in terms of podcasting, actually can make the content a lot more engaging. The way I describe my content is uh, financial services with a two drink minimum. And you know the conversation you have over dinner is always that little bit better than the conversation you have in the meeting room. And we all know that's where things really get done. And if we can scale that and bring that to thousands and thousands of people, maybe we just make the industry a little better along the way. And that's what motivates me is I happen to have been very, very fortunate to have walked the path I have. And I want to bring as many people along this journey because I believe that financial services is like the fabric of the economy if we make it better, everything else gets better too. It's the incentive mechanism for the species. So our jobs are actually kind of important. And if I can bring in really talented people to get involved in that, that excites me. 
You know, and that is what I love about you. You know, you are smart and witty and and authentic. And I think that when you combine that with all your expertise, I mean, it's a little bit like being the, the Magic Johnson of uh, fintech. You know, you can play lots of different positions and you've been there. You know, I, I think that that, that that really makes a difference. And and now you've inspired me to change the name of this podcast to Two Margaritas and, and Fintech or, or something. We'll, we'll, we'll have to uh, re, revamp it a bit. So, I mean, let's, let's then, you know, take a step here and, and think a little bit about uh, fintech, right? You know, maybe from a 10,000 foot level and then really sort of punctuating some of the more uh, uh, critical developments that are obviously catching the eye of, of, of commentators and the media and, and the market. Um, so, so what do you think are, are the most important developments shaping fintech today? I mean, th- there are lots of things happening, but if you're going to sort of hone down on maybe... Uh, one or two or, or or maybe three. What what would what would they be? Yeah, the the big thing is macro. So if we zoom out, right, fintech wasn't really a word ten years ago. There were some people using it, but it's become massive. And when did it become massive? Uh, it became massive over the incredible bull run technology had in the past decade, uh, born from cloud and mobile and social and all of those sorts of things. But what that did is it massively reduced the cost for entrepreneurs to build a company. And it also meant that we were able to scale new financial services companies a lot, lot faster. And they created some amazing businesses. Uh, Everything from Chime to Varro to Block to Robinhood to TransferWise to solve real problems for consumers and to solve problems for businesses with Ramp and Brex and Curve and many, many others. So the competitive landscape has really shifted in no matter which market you're in. And one could say, was that enabled by regulation? You know, somebody in in the UK, Europe region, I would say, yes, maybe that had a piece to do with it. It probably had a piece to do with zero interest rates. Um, But all of that is part of the soup that made this a thing. Uh, The biggest challenge now is maybe we had too much sugar. Maybe interest rates were too low for too long. And things that work really, really well to grow user acquisition don't work really well to manage fraud. You know, if I reduce the friction at onboarding, if I reduce the friction uh, anywhere in my process, that's a huge, huge win for onboarding but a huge, huge risk on the back end of fraud and compliance issues. So there's a fraud and compliance issue hiding in plain sight. That's macro theme number one. And macro theme number two is pandemic. I don't know if you noticed, but the branches were shut. Everybody had to open an account digitally. So we saw this massive spike in e-commerce, massive spike in uh, people adopting digital solutions. And again, that was a lifeline at a time when people had no other choice in many cases. Huge, huge win. And we should give credit to the legacy financial institutions who did amazing things in a short space of time. But they did that in part with the help of suppliers who were born helping the fintech companies. So I would argue fintech has created innovation massively, but also the pandemic and the rise in digital, the zero interest rates have meant that Now, maybe there's some risks hiding in plain sight that need to be managed. And the biggest development going forward is what are the sustainable business models? What's going to last the cycle? Because it's not going to be everything, 
But I don't think it's a binary perspective of, hey, it's only going to be the legacy banks that win in the end, or it's only going to be the fintech companies. The reality is there's been a tectonic shift in the landscape. Chime and PayPal now open more checking accounts by two to one than the most most of the big banks. This is a game changer. So I think it's been a it's been a huge few years. Yeah, you know, you're you're really predicting and, and really walking through a couple of the, the the big themes, you know, that I had in mind for this conversation. Because you know what you're what you're pointing to is is this very interesting fact that fintech, on the one hand, certainly predated COVID and the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic was, as we all understand it to be, this huge accelerant, right? But because it was an exogenous event, right? Well, because it was this this tail event, I do get the sense that people are are struggling to kind of figure out well, well, what does a business cycle even look like in fintech, right? Because both you have new technologies with short histories in some instances, in many instances, and indeed in most instances, and the history from which some of the technologies were born or or really ramped up and scaled were these extremely historically unusual events, right? So when you when you look at fintech now, right, and you know it's kind of hard to dis- to say whether or not we're entering into a normal phase or a new normal phase, uh, but how do companies even begin that process of being able to evaluate performance? Uh, in a world where you're now kind of, you know, outside, you know, or, you know, starting to at least leave this extraordinarily weird event, and yet you're still a, a new, a new, a new technology uh, firm or player. Yeah, and I guess it depends how new you are, how old is the company, right? Because if they're in the public markets, we saw uh, Robinhood, and we saw many, many others whose names aren't coming to mind quite as quickly, Coinbase, their share price absolutely plummeted, but it has since recovered. Is that just macro? Is that tech going risk off that's meant led to that? Or is that based on fundamentals and valuations that, that got uh, a little ahead of their time? Well, it's probably both. But if you look at what's happened at both of those businesses, they've had layoffs, they've become a lot more focused, and they're not trying to be all things to all people. And the reality of scaling a business is... Profitability matters, especially in public markets. Uh, and if there's not another round of VC funding waiting for you, you've got to hit those unit economics. And guess what? There are a lot of fintech companies out there doing this. If you look at somebody like a SoFi or if you look at a Wise in the United Kingdom, D-Local, there are examples of companies with what we call rule of 40 growth. So that uh, whether it's the, uh, the the revenue and the profitability, when you add them together, they're hitting that 40% mark. And that can come from the revenue or it can come from the profitability and the margin, but rule of 40 growth. And they're doing that in public markets. That has historically, regardless of the cycle, led to amazing category-defining companies historically. So we have those out in the wild. Nobody's paying attention to them. Why? Because they're paying attention to how much the share price went down rather than zooming out and looking at the fundamentals, which is ironic because a big part of the problem was we were so far ahead of the fundamentals. So on a sober analysis, of course, there are things that fundamentally look bad and there are things that fundamentally 
look pretty good. And so what we're seeing, I think, is a reversion to the mean for sort of financial services, sort of tech, but growth businesses. And financial services remains the largest profit pool of any industry sector, with some of the biggest friction, legacy cost, regulatory capture, uh, and moats of any industry. So the prize is still very much there. And what we've done is innovate around some of the distribution, but not necessarily the manufacture side. So there's a long way to go. And we've already created, I think, some generational companies, and we'll create many more. Don't get me wrong. Many might disappear too. And that's okay, so long as we can look after the founders, so long as everybody involved is okay. That's part of the cycle. You know, just to sort of carry on with that theme, I thought was really fascinating in in one of your more recent newsletters was, you know, we were talking about down rounds and those are not exactly the most uh, popular topics for people certainly in the Valley to, to, to think about and for many of the participants in the venture capital community. But but when you were looking at and across the, the industry, you had some well, I mean, if, if not positive, I'll call them at least silver lining perspectives towards down rounds. And, and again, usually you, you kind of hear that they're catastrophic, but you had a, a slightly more, more nuanced take. Um, what, are, what are you seeing now and, and, and what's your perspective on, on down rounds? Remember that uh, historically, the last couple of years, your valuation could have been 100 times revenue. That's not normal. So if you're getting a new round at 10 times revenue in financial services, guess what? You have absolutely crushed. That's amazing. Well done, you. You've clearly built a really strong business. That might be down from where you were before, but pay no attention to the before. Humans uh, cannot get around the sunk cost fallacy, this anchoring psychology we have where we see a big number and then we see a smaller number and we feel bad. For venture capitalists and financiers in particular, it's so funny how we all know this this universal law, but when incentives and bonuses are so related on portfolio growth, then of course that's like a a bad thing. And, And in normal times, it would have been a bad thing. But I think those were not normal times by any stretch. So there's that's point number one. And point number two is if we are building category-defining companies that are good for the consumer, good for the economy, these businesses are growing, they're fundamentally money-making machines, and they are solving social problems, economic problems, that's a good thing. And if, as a result of this market correction and down rounds in air quotes, entrepreneurs, founders, and companies have learned some very important lessons about fraud and compliance and cost management, Great. Guess what? They just got stronger. That's a good thing. And the, there is a temptation, I think, by many to sit inside their ivory tower and say, I told you so. Uh, I, would, I would be wary of, of that perspective. And I'd be wary of that perspective because uh, never bet against the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, they might be somewhat naive, but they will learn fast. And this is an important lesson for fintech to learn. I almost describe it as like a a difficult teenage phase. You know, you learn a lot during that period of life and what you come out of it is somebody that's got to get a job and somebody that's got to be productive. And I think that's kind of what we've moved on to. 
You know, it, it is interesting, it's sort of embedded in, in those comments are, are, are a number of interesting insights, right? And I always find it fascinating, particularly here in Washington, D.C., when I listen to the debate, uh, the debate that not infrequently plays itself out in terms of banks versus fintechs and, 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 and what are the competitive advantages and disadvantages of each. And, you know, often it's, it's a kind of a winner-take-all kind of argument, right? But, but it does seem that when you get into the question of democratizing access to financial services, you know, I thought it was really interesting how you said, you know, financial services are really how you incentivize you know, you know, the, the economy, I'm like, wow, that's, 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 that's pretty interesting. It's also the means obviously through which people access financial resources and fintechs often uh, tend to, although not entire, not, not always uh, sort of target to serve those that maybe the traditional banking system don't always serve. Right. So, you know, um, in, in your, in your comment on uh, Chime and PayPal, and the checking account um, data that you mentioned, and I'd really be curious to, to hear more about that, but uh, whether it's that or on the PPP loans or whatever, uh, you'll have fintech companies that can access, if not the unbanked, let's call them the, the underbanked or the under financially served, and they can get to them pretty quickly because they're using different kinds of rails like mobile phones instead of maybe bank accounts or the like. But there are risks and, and sometimes precisely because they are required to act with speed, giving a situation, or they're incented to act with speed because of a market opening, you get some 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 problems like, like the, the fraud issue or maybe um, the compliance questions. How do you see that balance kind of playing itself out as we enter into the normalcy world? I mean, like when you see a chime or others, you know, with these new you know, really getting access into providing a sort of core financial services. Do you think this is a blip? Um, do you think uh, that things are going to change? Your, your, your very initial first remarks had, had sort of said, hey, look, you know, we have an ongoing and a new regulatory environment. Frankly, that regulatory environment may not be the best for fintechs or in some instances, banks. And then you have the high interest rate environment and the funding environment. How do you see again, the, the risk-reward trade-off moving forward in a world where the macro conditions for the sector uh, continue to evolve? I think we need to steel man both sides of the debate on banks versus fintechs if it were to be a binary outcome to then find the sensible reality that's somewhere between the two. So the steel man argument from the banks goes... Uh, we have the highest regulatory burden, therefore we have the highest costs. Uh, we have, since the financial crisis, Basel III requirements um, that mean our cost of capital isn't what it used to be. So the prize for having this high regulatory burden is not what it used to be. And fintech companies effectively arbitrage that pricing gap by going into segments that we can't profitably go into and they do that with worse risk management because they're not subject to the same rules that, that we are. Therefore, the banks make an argument that what we need is this thing called a level playing field, as if such thing should ever exist. Um, the fintech companies argue the other way, that the banks use regulatory capture to ensure that there are many markets they can't access that they might not get access to bank accounts and impose structural costs upon them. So they have to try and 
put together a patchwork of small banks to address consumers. I should say as well, when the fintech company says we're democratizing access to finance, the banker might say you are sort of uh, ethical washing what is effectively pricing arbitrage. And I think in some cases that's probably true, uh, but in many cases it's not. Uh, the fintech company might say, uh, where would uh, cash flow based underwriting have come from if it were not from the fintech companies? Where would payroll linked lending have come from if it were not for the fintech companies? And we now see the large banks uh, are not only doing this voluntarily, they're doing it by force. The regulators see this as such a good force for change and for consumers that this is something we want to, to implement. So that would be the steelman side of the, the fintech debate. The messy reality in somewhere in the middle is this is a this is not a case where all of the children in the fintech class and all of the children in the bank class are good kids. There are naughty kids in there, and there are top of class academic students in there. And the you know I I would name check, and there are many many others. But a, a, a Capital One and a, a JP Morgan, to some extent, have done really interesting things in various parts of their business with data and being innovative. Let's give them a big old pat on the back and a check mark for what they've done with machine learning and payments and data. Wow, amazing. And everyone I forgot, I apologize. Those were just the ones that came to mind. Uh, on the other side of the spectrum, I would point out somebody like a SoFi and the type of student lending they're doing, their ability to achieve a banking license and deliver as much as they have, not always been perfect uh, historically, but is starting to do really, really interesting things. I would point at earned wage access. I would point at payroll-linked lending. I would point at cash flow-based underwriting and say these are genuinely novel and wouldn't have come from the bank. So there is an argument there. On the downside, I would say that some in that class you know, there were some big specs. Um, there's this idea that you can tip somebody that has lent money to you, which I find particularly strange. Um, and there are real concerns I have about the nature of that lending that's not called lending, uh, where a fee is sort of expected. And is that a junk fee? So not all of these things are the same. There are good cases and there are bad cases. But the aggregate impact of fintech has really changed the conversation quite dramatically and I think has moved the ball forward. Would we have 100% digital onboarding? Would we have delivered the PPP loans in the time we did without fintech? I don't think we would. Well, how do you think big tech uh, changes the fintech versus bank conversation? Especially when you think about you know, the new uh, uh, emergence of, of, of AI and the transformative potential of, of, of AI on, on both the fintech and the uh, banking sectors. You know, it's funny. Um, if you were to draw a triangle with um, the big tech, the fintech and the bankers, they would all feel hard done to and all have a complaint. Um, and yet all three of them are part of an ecosystem that is ultimately mutually beneficial. The banks have the sacred right to this thing called a balance sheet and the ability to take deposits and create new deposits through fractional reserve that none of the other actors can have. And if they are successful at doing that, that gives them their, their regulatory burden is a regulatory advantage because they, they are able to play in this market uh, and create deposits in really interesting and powerful ways. 
the tech companies say, well, you're kicking me because I'm technology. You're not letting me get a banking and I have consumers there um, and I'm trying to deliver innovation for you. And then the uh, fintech companies say, well, you know, I'm, I don't get the regulatory moat that the banks get and I don't get the, the scale and size that the tech companies have. Um, I'm outnumbered and I'm David and they're Goliath. The tech companies uh, do not specialize in dealing with compliance. We've seen, I think, a number of examples where uh, scams, uh, I think it was the, uh, there was a report out of the UK today by, I think it's Pay UK that suggests 61% of all scams that happen in the United Kingdom originate on meta-based platforms. This is a really interesting challenge for those organizations to be wrestling with. And it's a very difficult challenge, frankly. I'm sure there's lots of people there working to, to put that right. Uh, but it impacts financial services no matter what you do. And then they're trying to get payments licenses. But I would point you at um, the interesting examples of India and Brazil. What the local regulators did is recognize the power of these tech platforms during the pandemic, but also the importance of giving them access in a certain way. Both India and Brazil, uh, with UPI and PICS respectively, said to the tech companies, you can issue and work with payments, but provided you do it in this universal rail and that you're not monetizing that as a core revenue stream. Whereas in the US, we see that uh, there isn't a similar you know, approach yet. Potentially, there might be in the future with something like a FedNow. Uh, but Apple has gone further with the Apple card, and it has slowly started to work with uh, local states to start to begin to bring identity and driver's licenses into Passbook. So it's inching its way forward. They're all different. I think there's a there's an entire 6,000-word essay on each one of the big tech companies themselves, but they are here. They're part of the landscape. They're not going away. They do not want to get a banking license. They will probably never get a banking license, um, but there's a quid pro quo here in that they have distribution. And if you look at what's a bank really supposed to be good at is managing the manufacture of new deposits through the process of lending, creating new deposits. That is the one thing that is sacred and they are better at than anybody and that they get to do. And the, what they're less good at is distribution. Whereas the tech companies and the fintech companies are really, really good at that. Why isn't that naturally a figure of eight that's mutually reinforcing? Yeah, and, 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 you know, I think that given what you also s sort of lined out in terms of the natural competitive sort of features and, you know, advantages and disadvantages is that, you know, uh, a lot of the innovation, and to your point, historically and just sort of practically, when you look at how a bank is built, that a lot of the, the forces and drivers of innovation are probably going to happen outside of a bank. And it's it's literally because its job is to manufacture those deposits um, to keep them as safe as possible and, and and to do something with the proceeds. You know, you had mentioned a lot of jurisdictions just now, and there was a brief reference to the United Kingdom. I mean, you know, you live right outside of uh, London at a lovely uh, spot. Um, what do you think about about what's what's happening there? You know, there's been a lot of talk um, recently about sort of uh, uh, HMT and 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 the FCA, the the, the UK regulator, sort of thinking uh, more concretely about uh, all kinds of emerging technologies. Uh, is 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 the UK uh, still 
a pretty good place for 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 fintech and and how does it compare do you think to uh the rest of europe and the world the uk was a great place for fintech until brexit happened uh but it's starting to feel dangerously like uk fintech is back in a big way and that was one of my recent uh blogs at fintechbrainfood.com was that I'm seeing things that look really familiar. The superpower of the United Kingdom really is marketing. You know, we're a tiny island nation. Uh, yes, we're a global financial center, but we have no right to get as much attention as we do. We're just really good at packaging various bits of thought. If you look at what the uh, the United Kingdom does really well, it's things like Formula One. At the Olympics, we do really well in sports like sailing. The companies that we build uh, and cycling, it's where there's bespoke, unique, crafted technologies that's at the cutting edge. And I, I think we did the same with financial services. We do the hard yards on policy. London has San Francisco, DC, and New York within, you can literally walk between each of those centers. And it's also uh, kind of got the, the universities, Cambridge and Oxford, two of the top 20 in the world, right on its doorstep. So it has a lot of USPs as a global financial center. Uh, but what it did really well with all of that was market it from 2010 through 2016. A minister would stand up and say something official sounding, get lots of attention, and that attention would then parlay into policy that was enabling. Um, and once PSD2 had passed in Europe, uh, the UK was the first to implement it, put in place standards, which opened up the possibility of an open banking conversation and, and really drove lots and inspired lots of entrepreneurs to create new companies. And I think whenever you're inspiring entrepreneurs to create new companies, they do 99.9% .9 of the work. But sometimes you can just do a little bit of something to get people inspired. And that's what the UK does really, really well. Brexit happened and there was nothing. Frankly, just dealing with Brexit was taking up all mindshare. Uh, and when you're dealing with the things like the Northern Ireland border, what the fintech industry thinks about ABC is, is frankly a little bit less important. However, that has now turned. Uh, the In the last uh, month, the UK has passed a new bill on financial services. Uh, we have uh, the UK Law Association has published a report that defines digital assets as a third kind of property, and that is will be reviewed by the judiciary. And uh, it's formalized its observer status, uh, I think in intent at least, in the uh, financial services side of the European Commission and, and European Parliament. That would mean that uh, the United Kingdom is invited to sit in the room at least as these things are debated. Now, the United Kingdom's role in Europe historically was really generating much of the financial services policy that ended up as European policy. So it being in the room is actually something that's widely welcomed quietly by, by a lot of our, our, our European neighbors and friends. This is something that's starting when you put all of that together to look and feel a lot more interesting. Yes, what the UK has done recently has been pass a bill that tidies up a lot of things, frankly, um, and puts a lot of things in place. But there are new visas for entrepreneurs. There are new uh, routes to market for entrepreneurs in digital assets. And there's been a lot of 
devil in the detail work about the price for entrepreneurs towards the end of founding a company and IPOing. So when you, you put all of that together, I think, the, yes, a lot of that looks and feels like marketing. It's not an exciting new company. But Andreessen Horowitz has just opened its office in London. OpenAI has just opened its only other office outside the United States in London. And if you walk around London, all of the big tech companies have a hub here. Yes, for tax reasons and for talent reasons, a lot of them are in Dublin, but they're also in the United Kingdom. It's a great time zone. It's a place where you can trade with Asia in the morning and New York in the evening, and it's just really well-placed. So it's playing to those strengths I think there's a window of opportunity for it to really capitalize on it. The question now is, will there be follow through? Will we see this wave of companies or is the inflation here too high? Is it too much of a hard place to work? Are there, are there too many things that could go wrong? I'm excited though, in a way that I haven't been in about five or six years. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll then uh, uh, take that as a maybe. <laughs> <laughs> very, a very, a very scientific, uh, but but cautious optimism. Um, I, I guess we'll, we'll really sort of end on uh, uh, maybe one of your 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 latest posts uh, in fintech brain food, which had to deal with tokenization, sort of like to maybe tie up uh, lots of different disparate uh, strands in this conversation. Uh, there have been lots of trends, uh, lots of innovation coming out of financial technology, and uh, one of the most interesting uh, that's really impacting not just the fintechs, but it's also impacting traditional financial services, also impacting uh, banking, is this this growth in tokenization. And you had a lot of really sort of interesting insights about it. But you know, from a fintech perspective, what does tokenization look like, and what do you what does it mean, and and and, and what do you really uh, expect to see uh, in, in the next couple of years. Yeah, I, just before I do that, let's be absolutely clear. I am long-term really excited about the United Kingdom. Like genuinely, it's not, a, it's not a maybe. I think it's got a real shot. I'm not cautiously optimistic. That's just being British. Uh, I think we've got a real, real shot. I hope it lasts because I'm British and it's inevitably going to rain at some point. However, while it lasts, this is, this is, uh, this is really fun. What's a token? A token is one of the most annoying words in the English language because it can almost mean anything. Uh, it's like a swear word. You can put it as almost any word in a sentence and it still makes sense. Those of you who've listened to George Carlin might get the reference. Um, but if have you used Apple Pay, Chris? I'm assuming yeah, you have. of course. So you're using a token in Apple Pay. It's, it's a little bit different, but what we've done in Apple Pay is take a physical card and tokenize it. From there, a representation of your card like lives on the mobile device and allows you to pay for things as if you had the physical card present. And so tokens have existed in cryptography and in data science and uh, in software engineering for, for many decades. In, in, a, in a sort of traditional sense, it is just a long string of numbers that represents something else. Um, that points to some underlying bit of data that you don't want to reveal, like a 16-digit card number. However, the Bank of International Settlements, and when we're talking about financial assets, they talk about tokenization with a slightly different meaning. Um, so an asset historically was recorded as a piece of paper. It might be a paper note, it might be a stock certificate, or it might have been dematerialized. It's an electronic record 
on a ledger uh, entry inside of a database. And what we do is we take that record and turn it into a token, a bit like we did with our 16-digit card number and put it into Apple Pay. And we, when we turn it into a token, we give it this asset some new superpowers. One, we can automate all of the roles around that token. So instead of having a manual process for KYC and trying to find out the tax certificate, we can automate those rules of what you're allowed to do with this asset. And the second thing we do is we make any transaction programmable. So if this, then that, if the price of oil goes down, sell, if the price of oil goes up, buy, if there's six, seven, eight counterparties to a transaction and they all have to do stuff, we can make sure that that all happens automatically regardless of who's involved in the transaction. So that's hugely exciting for what tokenization could mean by making assets programmable. And here's the crazy thing. Anything can be tokenized and anything is being tokenized. So in a way, tokenization is this word thrown around by regulators and financial institutions because they don't like the word crypto. And they don't like other words involved. And distributed ledger tech was so 2016. So we don't want to say that anymore. So let's use this word tokenization. Um, and the reality is, whether we're talking about CBDCs, whether we're talking about tokenizing deposits held at a bank, whether we're talking about stable coins, whether we're talking about a non-fungible token and you know digital art, it sort of doesn't matter to me. We're still talking about tokens. The regulatory environment, the rules around those assets, how they can be traded, who trades them, the standing law involved is wildly different across that spectrum. But that spectrum can and should exist. And that spectrum on one side in the more digital art alternative space potentially makes a whole bunch of assets that were uh, had low liquidity, were hard to trade, had poor price discovery, suddenly available in financial markets. That's hugely exciting. Uh, and it makes them programmable and automated. And on the other end of the spectrum, it makes it's probably the biggest change in financial services market structure in 50 years. Like it's genuinely tokenizing. We're talking about a platform shift in how financial markets operate. So it can't be understated as an opportunity. And I think that's really, really important. Well, I can't understate what an opportunity it has been to have the great Simon Taylor on this podcast, my friend. Thank you so much for letting us pick your brain food. <laughs> you see what I did there, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's, it's better than picking your nose, that's for sure. Yeah, okay, true. Okay, well, you know, hey, thanks so much, man, for joining us. And we're going to have to have you on again. This was super insightful and, and, and much appreciation for uh, taking the time out for us. Loved it, man. It was a pleasure. Catch you soon. One of the real impressions you get from Simon's comments is that fintech is more than just a catchphrase, but it's not exactly a science either. It spans diverse fields of finance with a technology underlay. And what tends to unite everything in the space is that there is some kind of movement of money. Now, of course, the question is what happens when the very conception of movement is changing, along with our understanding of money itself. And I'm sure Simon will address it in the next newsletter.
But suffice it to say that it's clear that the future of the industry may continue to include fintechs, banks, and big tech as prime movers, but each of these actors is likely to look very different from how they look now. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.